This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. As someone who's done a lot of research, I can tell you what I'm not envious of in that community. I'm not envious of people who spend 20, 30 years doing groundbreaking research and win a Nobel Prize. I'm not envious of people who win a MacArthur Genius Grant. I'm not envious of people who are really good at getting grant funding and have huge laboratories with tons of grad students and postgrads running around working under them. I'll tell you what I am a little bit envious of. I'm envious of people who can ask a better question than anyone has ever asked before, because that is the beauty and elegance of research. Today's guest, Kelly Turner, has asked and begun to answer such a question. Before we get to the interview, though, a quick shout out of gratitude to two people who have stepped up to support the Plant Yourself podcast this week. Michelle Rutledge and Michael Worobiec have both become patrons. Thank you guys so much. I thought when I started doing this uh, donation thing that it was really going to be the huge donations that were going to make the big difference, and obviously they will, and I don't want to discourage anyone, but I'm amazed at how meaningful even a dollar a month is from people, just to know, for me to know there are people out there. Because I'm right now, I'm recording this on a handheld recorder in a darkened bedroom away from everybody else, going to upload it tomorrow in the office. And podcasting can feel very isolating in very one way, like it's me talking to myself and there's nobody else out there. So along with the kind feedback I get, even a dollar a month really goes a long way towards making me feel appreciated and connected. So thank you, Michelle and Michael. And uh, I look forward to uh, maybe saying your name here in in a future week. So back to today's episode. Kelly Turner, PhD, is the author of a book called Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. So cancer is pretty much the scariest word in the English language or possibly any language. So if you have cancer or you know anyone who has cancer, or if you're a human being, since Western men have a 50% chance and women a 33% chance of developing cancer in their lifetime, you really need to read this book and share it widely. So this is not one of those think happy thoughts and cure everything books. Instead, it's a profoundly scientific look at a group of people who may hold the key to curing cancer, and who have been systematically ignored, marginalized, and dismissed as irrelevant by medical research for the past 150 years. And this is what I mean by Kelly being able to ask a question that nobody else was able to ask. Because this group is people who have survived terminal cancer by means other than traditional Western approaches of the big three, chemo, radiation, and surgery. So either they didn't go for these treatments at all or the treatments didn't work and they were sent home to die and instead they survived and thrived. So wouldn't you be curious about what they did and about how they healed? Yet until Kelly Turner began her research, nobody had ever asked them. Their remissions are termed spontaneous, which means instant and random. And it turns out from Turner's research that their remissions are anything but spontaneous. So Radical Remission shares the nine factors common to virtually all of these survivors. Some of them may not surprise you. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know the diet can play a big role. Others you might never guess in a million years. But right now, they're the best data we currently have on why terminal cancer patients recover, why they believe they recovered. So without further ado, Kelly Turner, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Howard. I'm excited to to be speaking with you today. So you wrote a book called Radical Remission, and you have a Radical Remission project. Before we get into it, could you lay the foundation for us? What what do you mean by Radical Remission? Well, Radical Remission, which is also called Spontaneous Remission in the medical world, and we can talk about why I hate that word, spontaneous. (laughs) So what I call Radical Remission um, is... Someone who heals from cancer without using any Western medicine ever, or who uses Western medicine to its fullest, but it unfortunately doesn't work, and so they're sent home on hospice. And at that point, they switch gears into complementary treatments, and they turn it around. So I'm looking at people who um, heal from cancer 
in the absence of Western medicine. And um, this is an interesting group of people that were not being studied. And I'm always, I'm always quick to say that just because I study these people doesn't mean I'm against Western medicine in the slightest, right? So the researchers who are studying the Kenyans who run marathons barefoot, you know, they're not accused of being anti-shoes. Right? <laughs> um, just because I study people who don't use chemosurgery or radiation doesn't mean I'm personally against those things or I'm trying to promote not using those things. It's more that the fact that this can be done, right, just like the fact that a marathon could be run barefoot is incredible and fascinating and deserves further study, especially with something like cancer, which we haven't figured out yet, right? So we're all still trying to win this war on cancer. It's it's a growing epidemic, right? One in two men will be diagnosed in their lifetime, one in three women. And so for me, when I found out that there was this large group of people that were healing from cancer without conventional methods and were being completely ignored by all other researchers, um, that's when I sort of said, hey, you know, <laughs> I don't care how someone does it. If they're healing from stage four cancer, they should be studied, just plain and simple. So... Uh, that's a, my long-winded answer of what is radical revision. Right. Now, it's it's every academic and researcher's dream to find a niche where they can make a contribution that's meaningful, that's different. And here was this giant gaping hole in the literature that no one had thought to fill. So first of all, how, how did you come to be interested in the study of radical remission of cancer? Well, cancer is a very personal topic for me, as it is for, I think, everybody, because everyone is um, unfortunately touched by cancer somehow. Um, and so for me, uh, because I'd lost a good friend of mine when when he was just 16 and I was 16 to stomach cancer, um, I've always I've always been sort of drawn to helping cancer patients somehow. So after I finished at Harvard with my undergrad, I took a couple years trying to figure out my path. And I started volunteering with cancer patients, with actually pediatric cancer patients. And really the first day of volunteering, I just, something in my heart was like, this is your home. This is, this is your calling. Um, so I ended up going back to graduate school for counseling in, uh, with cancer patients. Um, and that was my plan, was to be a counselor and help them through the emotional ups and downs of the cancer journey. And that was going to be my way of giving back. But the uh, the universe had other plans for me uh, in hindsight. So during during a lunch break, uh, during my counseling days, I was reading a book called Spontaneous Healing, um, a fantastic uh, book by Dr. Andrew Weil, um, because I was I was starting to get interested in um, you know everything people could do to get well. So I was starting to get interested in complementary modalities. I was reading this book and. You know, he, he um, in one of the first chapters, he mentions a man who's had a radical remission. And for me, it was one of those, like, record screech moments in my life. You know, like, everything just sort of froze. And I said, what? Somebody had stage 4 kidney cancer, was sent home on hospice to die, and they're alive and well 20 years later, and I don't know this man's name? <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, everyone should know this man's name. Like, this is incredible. And I sort of naively thought that this was the only case in the world. Um, <laughs> and I, of course, went home that night um, and searched the medical journals and found that there were over a thousand of these cases just sitting there. Uh, over a thousand cases verified in very reputable medical journals um, across all different types of cancer, all different ages. And these had been in the journals since the beginning of journals. Right, the, like one of the very first journals in 1895, British Medical Journal, includes a case report of spontaneous remission. And so I said, I just at that point my mind was just boggled, and I said, this has been going on for over a hundred years, and of course much more than that because we've only had journals for for over a hundred years. Um, you know, the earliest case reports of spontaneous remission are actually from, you know, <laughs> the year I mean the 13th century, right? So. Um, so spontaneous remission has really been happening for as long as cancer has been reported. And yet these cases were just sitting there, like growing cold in the medical literature. And and because they were spread out in, you know, a thousand different journals, no one had really done what I did, which was to try to look at them all together and say, how many of these are there? And, 
and and what is their scope? You know, what cancers do they affect and everything? So when I ran that search and found that there were thousands across all cancer types over the past 150 years, I said, oh my goodness, this is happening much more often than we think, and no one is studying them in depth. I mean, these case reports in the medical journals are very perfunctory. They're very brief. Um, and I had so many questions. I would read these brief reports, and I'm like, well, can I talk to the patient, please? <laughs> like, did they change anything else in their life? Did they change their diet? Did they start exercising? Did they stand on their head for two hours? You know, all, all I was getting was a biomedical report of I sent this person home on hospice. They came back six months later and were well. And to me, there was a big, <laughs> a big hole there of questions. And, you know, as a counselor, that was my job, right? To ask questions. How are you feeling? You know, what are some steps that you think you can do to you know, to help yourself. Um, and so it was actually a blessing that I'm not an MD um, because my counseling background made me very open to simply exploring these cases. I wasn't threatened by them. So anyway, I, I went back to my professors at Berkeley and I said, I want to get my PhD in this. And they said, you want to get your PhD in something no one else is studying? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> um, so they were very supportive and, um, I was lucky enough to apply for and, and receive funding from the American Cancer Society. And here we are. It's been 10 years, and I've now analyzed over 1,500 of these cases. So it's been an amazing journey. Wow. So there's so much I want to unpack here. Um, but, but one of them, I want to return to your, your comment that you hate the word spontaneous. And I have to say, I also read and adored spontaneous healing. And I read it, I can't remember, you know, early 90s. And I, I remember being struck by, I think he was talking about warts spontaneously falling off and, right. you know, placebo effect and how this could apply to cancer. And then, but I think the word spontaneous is what... As I was beginning my own um, postgraduate graduate research career, was well, it's like studying electricity by studying lightning. Like, you know, how could you do it? We know it happens. We know there's lightning, but we can't go and and figure out when it's going to strike, or predict why, or how, or measure anything about it. Is is that your issue with the word spontaneous, or or one of them? Um. Well, yeah, I have quite a few issues with that word. Um, my main issue with the word spontaneous is that it implies that something occurs without a cause. And its its secondary implication is that it implies that something happens quickly, just sort of out of the blue, overnight, boom, they're better. And, and there's no cause and there's no reason to it. It's just a fluke. Um, and that is how a Western-trained doctor would explain something like this, because these people are not healing with their methods. And so their only other explanation is, oh, this must be just random luck. <laughs> um, but when something's happening thousands of times across all different cancer types, it, it, there comes a point where it's scientifically irresponsible to call something that you can't explain luck. <laughs> um, it's, it's actually, you know, a researcher's responsibility to investigate anomalies. And that's not what was happening. These, these anomalies were being dismissed as flukes as opposed to investigated. Now, sometimes there are truly, you know, random occurrences in the universe, perhaps. Um, I, I haven't found one yet. You know, the, 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 the more we dig into things, there always seems to be a cause behind something. But, you know, there's certainly some scientists who believe that things, some things happen randomly. But you can't just label something random without proving that it's random. Um, and that's what was happening. These cases were being dismissed as random flukes and, um, and never looked at again. And scientifically, that's not, um, that's not good science. <laughs> so, um, so I hope that uh, – oh, yeah. So anyway, so that's why I don't call it spontaneous. Um, and also that everybody that I interviewed – I've done over 250 in-depth interviews now with radical mission survivors from, from 10 different countries, and they hate the word spontaneous. They take offense to it. They say, why did my doctor call this a spontaneous remission? There was nothing spontaneous about it. I worked my tail off to get into remission, and it took me a year and a half. This wasn't, this wasn't random, and this wasn't overnight. This was hard work and changing nearly every aspect of my life, 180 degrees. 
So, um, so it's really, it's at this point, it's, I think it's just inappropriate to use that word. It's just, it's not accurate in any sense. (laughs) Gotcha. So I find it fascinating that you were able to make headway in this topic coming with a counselor's background. Because there's, there's a couple of, you know, funny tropes in your story, right? One is, you know, Harvard undergrad, and the other is, you know, find the cure for cancer. Like you'd imagine, I, like if I closed my eyes and someone said, picture a Harvard undergrad de- dedicated to finding the cure for cancer, I picture a man who is going to go into biomolecular research, <laughs> Right. Right. Just and 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 you're you and I think there's plenty of those types and there's plenty of labs and there's tons of money going into that sort of research. And I think there's something missing in there. And it's and and it's something that you brought to it. Can you talk a little bit about what it was about counseling, what it was about maybe your approach and your personality um, that led you to this other path that is proving so fruitful? Um, I think, you know, I think in some ways I was just the, the right person at the right time for this. Um, I don't think that a biomedically trained PhD person, man or woman, um, could have opened their minds enough. I mean, I'm sure some of them could, but, you know, I'm just speaking in, in stereotypes here for a minute. But once you're, once you're really um, trained, in something as specific and as reductionistic as molecular biology or, you know, a medical degree, you know, which involves eight years of medical school and training. At the end of those, you know, those, those intensive trainings, which are very reductionistic, um, you are sort of locked into your mindset of how you've been taught the world operates, which is biological only. Um, and unless you're, you know, a psychoneuroimmunologist who you know, got their PhD in looking at how do our thoughts and emotions affect our, you know, HPA access, which is, which is, you know, the hormone master glands in your brain that are spewing chemicals, which then tell your immune system what to do. That kind of scientist, I think, could have um, done the work that I did. But I think people who are trained in molecular biology or just in, you know, traditional medicine as it's taught at most medical schools, they're really only learning about the physical um, and they they sort of dismiss um, anything else besides, you know, physical interventions given to you by a doctor. <laughs> um, and again, I'm not, you know, I have so much respect for doctors, and um, I'm, I'm speaking in sweeping generalities here. But what was helpful for me is that I wasn't a doctor, so I didn't have to undo any of that training. I didn't have anything to step outside of. I simply had a deep, deep desire to help cancer patients. And when I saw these incredible cases of recovery that were being ignored and not studied, that just in a very common sense way um, didn't make sense to me. Um, so, and, and being a counselor, you know, I think a counselor is one of the skills you need to have to be a good counselor is to be a good listener and to ask open-ended questions. And in this type of, of, scientific quandary that we were in, which is, this is a phenomenon that's happening that can't be explained with the current model, right? The current medical model cannot explain these thousands of cases. And so what's necessary, and of course, I've learned this back at Harvard when I was, you know, studying psychology research, is you have to go back to step one of the scientific method, right? Everybody's so focused on these, you know, RCTs, these randomized control trials, as that's, that's, the best part of science. Well, no, the scientific method is the best part of science. And you can't jump to step number eight, which is an RCT. You have to move through the method. And many people forget that step one of the scientific method is observation. Step two of the scientific method is developing a hypothesis based on your observation. And so what I saw was there were thousands of these cases in the medical journals, verified, documented, you know, these people definitely have cancer and they definitely don't know. And then at the end of the article, it would say, hypothesis unknown. Or it is unclear at this time, you know, the, the authors of the study have no current hypotheses for the spontaneous remission. What they were saying is, we don't know how the hell this person got better. And so when you're in a situation where nobody has a hypothesis or, a, a, you know, a guess, as to how these people got better, you have to go back a step in the scientific method, which is observation. And of course, 
for me as a counselor, that's a, you know that was a huge skill set of mine uh, was to just to observe and listen and ask open-ended questions. So you know, I I got my PhD in in the social sciences, so I've been trained in qualitative and quantitative research, and you know I can do multiple regression statistics with the best of them. But that's not what was called for here. You have to apply the research method that is called for by the situation. And in this situation, given the fact that there were no hypotheses from doctors, we had to go back to step one of scientific method, which was deep observation. And so um, that calls for qualitative research methods, which are very similar to anthropology. You know, I always tell people, it's like as if, imagine I went to the, you know, the jungles of Borneo and came across a brand new tribe of indigenous peoples who we didn't know existed and I didn't speak their language, you know, and they were, they were behaving in really different ways. As an anthropologist doing qualitative research, my job is to observe, not judge, learn their language, gain their trust, and then ask questions so that they can tell me how their world works and what they're doing and why. And tackle mission survivors are not that different than a brand new tribe in the jungles of Borneo because they've, they've not been studied and they don't make sense. So I, um, my counseling skills served me very well in that I was able to gain their trust quickly. They didn't see me as judging them or, you know, I wasn't asking them questions like, well, tell me exactly what supplements you used. Okay, what dose? And, you know, why did you pick that supplement? I just said, why do you think you healed? Tell me everything you did that you think helped your healing process. And then I let them talk for an hour or two. And it was only at the end that I started asking more specific questions. So if they hadn't talked about diet, um, I would ask them about it. If they hadn't talked about another common thread that kept coming up in my interviews, at the very end, I would ask them about it, but always gently and without the assumption that they needed to say yes or no. Right. And that's when I heard you speak um, in November at Wellness Forum Health Conference, that was the one thing that I kept like circling and highlighting again and again that your approach of an anthropologist and the way you asked questions that were open-ended and there, there's, you know, there's a way in which you have to um, be very humble or, you know, like, like mm -hmm. put, put your ego on a leash because, you know, when you're, you know, I interview people a lot for this, you know, podcast and it's, there's always this temptation for me to ask questions that will make me feel clever <laughs> And, yeah. and, you know, to say just, you know, I have no assumptions here. I have no, like, step one is observation. Step zero, perhaps, is curiosity and humility to say, you yeah. know, you, you're the one with the answers. Share with me. I was, and that, I found that so powerful that, that that was a method, you know, that you could easily have gone into this with other methodologies, other survey methodologies, other ways of gathering data. Can you talk a little bit about why the one you chose was appropriate and why some others wouldn't have been? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, in this type of anthropological research, you have to think very carefully about how you're going to get the most accurate data. So if I had walked in with, you know, a white doctor's coat and um, if I, you know, had a clipboard and a pen, um, and if I'd given them a survey, even if it was translated into their language that said, please write down all the things you did get better. Question number one, question number two, um, they would have felt studied. They would have felt inspected and judged. Um, and when you're asking someone, especially as a counselor, when you're asking them to open up about emotional changes they may have made, that's not, you don't want them to feel studied. You don't want to them to feel inspected. You want to feel like I wanted to make them feel that they had done something amazing that Western medicine couldn't, couldn't figure out. And so they are the expert. And I am here as a truly blank slate with a, a soft smile on my face to warmly accept everything they tell me. And so I had to be very careful about what I wore to these interviews. And I, I never brought a clipboard, and I never took notes. I, I just said, you know, would you mind if I just recorded so that I don't have to take notes because I want to be able to listen fully. And then they quickly forget about the little tiny recorder, and then we're just having a conversation. But this type of qualitative research, and I'll never forget one of my professors at Berkeley um, told me this in one of my early classes, and it has really stuck with me. She said, qualitative research is conversational, but it's not because in a typical conversation, like you and I are having, Howard, I talk for a little bit, and then you talk for a little bit, and 
you know, and we go back and forth and it's considered rude for one person to talk the whole time. And in qualitative research, my goal was to get them to talk the whole time and to, and to make them think that I wasn't judging them whatsoever, but was instead really excited and fascinated by everything they were saying. And so if they said something that, um, you know, would have been offensive to me or would have been, you know, like, well, that sounds nuts. Um, I had to hide that reaction. Um, so you have to work really hard to be this blank slate that's warm and inviting. Um, and look, after the first, you know, 50 interviews, nothing shocked me, right? You know, you hear about, <laughs> you hear about some, some quote unquote crazy things. Um, but my job was not to label it crazy. My job was just to write it down um, and in this case, record it. And so, you know, now my research is a little different. You know, after doing this extensive analysis, I have found these nine factors. And so now my website is a survey and it asks people about these specific nine factors. And then, then at the end, it says, is there anything else, you know, in addition to these nine? And that's because, um, you know, my deep observation led to nine hypotheses. And so now, now the um, research methods have changed a bit where I'm, I'm now sort of testing these hypotheses with new, with new cases to say, do you match these nine hypotheses or did you not do these nine? Did you do, you know, five other things? Um, so now it's appropriate for me to make my research methods a little more standardized in, in the form of a written survey. But in the beginning, the, the only appropriate approach was true anthropology. Right. Well, that that makes a great segue into the findings themselves. So you said you you when you ultimately ran your uh, regression analysis or however however you um, identified them. So the, there were there were seventy five factors, and nine of them were common to every person that you talked to. Yes. Um, well, for the most part, um, everybody that I've studied in depth did. Um, if not all nine, then eight of the nine. Some people didn't do herbs um, and supplements because they wanted to get all of their nutrients from food, and so they they sort of intensified their diet. Um, but for the most part, um, yes, everyone that I've studied in depth used nine of the 75 factors. Um, I've actually found more than 75 now. You know, there's in every new case that comes in, someone's trying something new. So. Of all the people I've studied, they did lots of things to try to get better. You know, one gentleman stood on his head for an hour every day. Um, but not everybody did that. <laughs> not everyone did all 75. But when I looked at, and again, it just, uh, what I did was not multiple regression. Um, that's a more quantitative method. What I did was qualitative analysis, um, where you're looking at the frequency of these factors. Um, so when I looked at the frequency of these factors, I found that while not everyone was doing all 75, they were all doing these nine, these, these eight or nine, give or take. And then they weren't all doing the tenth. And then even few, fewer people were doing the 11th most frequent factor and so on and so forth. So that's how you do qualitative research and qualitative analysis. And it would have been great if there had been three things that they were all doing. <laughs> it would have made my life a lot easier and the dissertation a lot shorter. But, um, you know, the, the data is the data, and there was this sort of drop-off after the ninth factor. So, so, yeah, these nine factors were my findings. And I always like to remind people on interviews, these are not how these people got better. These are how these people think they got better. That's all we can say right now. We can say these are nine things that radical mission survivors had in common. Whether or not these nine things definitely cured their cancer we don't know. Maybe it was something they're not aware of. Maybe it was some, you know, something in their water. I don't know. Um, we also don't know if these nine things can be applied to people outside of that group, right? We don't know if these nine things can be generalized to the entire population of cancer patients. Um, and I'm always, you know, careful to say that because I, I consider myself a good researcher. So these are nine hypotheses. These are not conclusions or guarantees about, about how to cure your cancer. However, and there's a big however here, other researchers have studied these nine factors in randomized control trials with cancer patients. So when I started putting the book together and saying, well, this is what I found, has anyone else found anything on these nine factors? And the answer is, hell yes. <laughs> there are tons of studies, for example, on releasing suppressed emotions like stress or anger or grief. And 
specifically, you know, there have been tons of stress management control trials for cancer patients. So cancer patients who go through an eight-week stress management course um, compared to a control group with the exact same type of cancer who doesn't go through that stress management course, well, the ones who go through the stress management course, at the end of the course, they have significantly higher numbers of natural killer cells in their immune system. And of course, natural killer cells are the cells that pop cancer. They, they are how your body fights cancer. So, um, and, and through all of the nine factors, I was able to find randomized controlled trials um, showing that doing this factor strengthens your immune system. Um, and sometimes there were, the studies were even specific to cancer. So it's specifically strengthening the immune system for cancer patients. And so the, the overall conclusion that I can give to people is these are nine things that all radical mission survivors do. We, we, we won't know until we run a $5 million prospective randomized control trial whether or not these factors can absolutely cure anyone's cancer. But what we do know from other, other people's studies is that these nine factors have been shown statistically and significantly to strengthen your immune system. And that can't hurt and might help a lot. So you can start doing these nine things right now if you wish um, safely. And what you, what you know for sure is you're going to help your immune system. You might even help your immune system enough that it can turn around cancer in your body. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there's none of these nine things that you shouldn't do if you don't have cancer, right? Well, that's the thing. You know, the, the one caveat is the herbs and supplements. Um, that's one of the nine factors. That one should be done under the guidance of a health professional. And notice I didn't say under the guidance of an MD necessarily because MDs don't know about herbs and supplements. But a naturopath does or a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner does. Um, plenty of other trained dietitians and other people do know about herbs and supplements and have read all of the studies on them. You know, your, your oncologist doesn't have the time to read those. He's busy reading the studies about chemo. Um, but for the most part, these are all things that you can do safely um, by yourself at home tonight if you want, uh, with the exception of herbs which, and supplements, which should be done under the guidance of a health professional. And as you so rightly pointed out, you don't have to wait till you have stage four cancer to do these things. The radical emerging survivors that I study are all still doing these nine factors because they believe that if they stop doing these nine factors, their cancer will come back. So this has become for them not only the way that they got out of a cancer diagnosis and into remission, but it's the way that they stay in remission. So it's become a prevention strategy for them. Um, and certainly all the, all the studies that have been done in these nine factors, many of them are prevention studies. So for example, you know, a wonderful large study done on breast cancer survivors showed that um, those breast cancer survivors who ate five or more fruits and vegetables a day um, combined with exercise every day lived twice as long as breast cancer survivors who didn't do those things. And so using these nine factors is, has been shown in studies to prevent cancer recurrence. Um, and, of course, I would believe that it would prevent cancer from, from developing in the first place as well. So... Yeah, these are definitely things. I mean, I, I do all nine of them. I've, I've, you know, knock on wood, I've never um, had a cancer diagnosis. Um, but certainly after doing this research, I was like, well, why wouldn't I? These are nine things that make me happier and healthier and most likely are helping my body keep cancer at bay. So, of course, I'm going to do them. This is sort of a no brainer for me. Right. And that's also quite different from uh, a lot of healthcare professionals who, who know the research and don't apply it to themselves. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've met both. I've met researchers who, who um, you know, are affected by their research and therefore change. And then I've met other researchers who don't. So I'm just one of those people who was so impacted by the people I met and by my findings um, that I wanted to, I wanted to start acting like a radical remission survivor. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, let's let's segue into the the findings themselves. And in, in in your talk, you um, divided them into three categories, right? Yes, um, and that's because when I'm when I'm giving a keynote um, and speaking for an hour, it's it's hard to just say, okay, let's go one through nine. Here we go. Um, so yeah, I do I do um, chunk them into three three categories when I'm speaking about them. In the book, um, I don't talk about those three categories, but I'm happy to, happy to do that now. Um, 
I sort of see like a foundational category, which is the three factors that sort of set the foundation for making the other six factors a little easier to do. Um, the second category I see are three factors that are physically based. And then the third category um, I call emotional mental factors. So it's sort of three, three, and three, and that's, and that's how I try to cover the nine without overwhelming people. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm easily overwhelmed, so <laughs> that'll probably work, work for me as well. So uh, what, what are the, yeah. fo- the foundational factors? So the foundational ones, and again, um, these aren't in order of importance. We don't know yet which of these nine are more important than the others. Um, one of them might be, you know, the key, and the other eight might be what we call in research noise. Um, or they might all be important. Or four of them might be important, and five of them are noise. So we don't know that yet. So, so these categories are just sort of um, functional and helping us sort of digest them. But the foundational ones for me um, are, first of all, finding your strong reasons for living. So this is, this is um, one of the emotional factors, but I, I call it a foundational one because if you're going to make big changes in your life, um, I think it's a little easier if you start with the foundation of knowing why you're making these changes, right? If you're going to give up coffee and sugar and meat and dairy and, you know, alcohol and all these things that, you know, may have brought you some, some joy, you want to be grounded in why you're doing this, why you're making these changes. So yeah, finding strong reasons for living was one of the nine factors. And from a traditional healing standpoint, because I've also interviewed many, many traditional healers from around the world who treat cancer, they believe this is really crucial because if you are connected to your purpose, um, your calling in life. They, they believe you're bringing in chi or prana or life force energy into your physical body. And when you are disconnected from your excitement for being here on this planet and your reasons for living, you are not pulling in chi or life force. And eventually, um, if you don't bring in enough chi or life force, the body can't survive. It's sort of like not, 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 not recharging your batteries, you know, um, eventually those batteries are going to wear out. And so, it's, um, you know, it sounds sort of woo-woo, I guess, but, um, but it's actually very physically based in, in scientific studies, right? So we've seen that when you take depressed cancer patients, and of course depression is characterized by not having a will to live, and when you treat that depression, their survival rates increase almost twofold. So we, we have studies that show that when we can take cancer patients out of depression and get them back into touch with their reasons for living, their survival times lengthen incredibly, um, and and I find that I find that very fascinating. Right, and, and it's so interesting that that's you know like considered a I mean a, a treatment after you have a diagnosis of a dire prognosis. You know that like um, why wouldn't right? I'm tr- I'm trying to phrase this properly because it's really spinning around and around in my head like. It's sad that people don't have a strong reason to live. Like I look at, you know, the fly on my desk right now that I'm trying to swat away. It has a really, you know, intense reason to, you know, it wants to live. It keeps avoiding my, my rolled up, you know, piece of paper here. The, the, <laughs> the carrot in my garden has a strong will to live. Like, like it's, it seems crazy to me that as a species we have this epidemic of, of members of the species who don't have a strong reason to live. Well, uh, we live in a, in a harsh world, um, and I, as a counselor, I've met plenty of people who have every reason to not want to be here because their, their life is so hard. Um, and, of course, you know, the healers that I met would say, you don't have to have strong reasons for living. Like, if, if you want to leave this plane and, and, you know, end your suffering, you know, that's your choice. Um, but they say, you know, if you would like to get rid of cancer and keep being here, one way to help your system do that energetically is to, is to reconnect with your purpose. Um, and I certainly met plenty of people, you know, most medical commission survivors, because they're on the other side, right, they're in remission, they say that they wouldn't trade the experience for the world, that they would never trade having cancer. And they say that, and that's, that's a controversial thing to say. Um, and of course, it's easier to say when you survived it. But they say that not because they enjoyed it, 
they say that because the person they are today as a result of changing their lives via these nine factors is so different and so much more fulfilled and happy and at peace and good feeling that they, they would never want to go back to their old life. And this is something worth thinking about because when I was back in my counseling days, you know, there's sort of this idea in the Western medical world of cancer treatment of this was bad luck that you got this. We don't know what causes cancer. We're going to give you this harsh treatment um, for you. And once we're done, you'll just go back to your old life and you'll get your life back. And what that does is that, um, first of all, that totally disempowers the patient. They think, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. I just need to receive these harsh treatments and then hope that it stays away. Um, but it also encourages them to go back to their life. Um, the Rathamission survivors that I study wholeheartedly disagree with that, as do their healers. They say, and they believe very firmly, that something in that old life was allowing cancer to grow, right? I, you know, we won't go so far as to say, you know, you, were, you caused your cancer, but we, we say some, some of something about the conditions of your old life were allowing cancer to grow in your body. And so if you go back to your old life, those conditions will come back and your cancer may come back. So instead, radical mission survivors say, you must change your life. You can't, you can't go back to your old life because something about it was allowing cancer to grow. You must make permanent changes. Um, and for them, the changes are all very, very positive. They're happy about those changes in the end. You know, the, the nine factors, you know, just sort of run through them are, radically changing your diet, right? And in, in a way that's very health-inducing, right? So, you know, eating more vegetables, and, and we can go into more detail. Taking herbs and supplements that make you feel better and balance your system and, and you know, just optimize your immune system. And then you have these seven factors that are emotional, like taking control of your health, following your intuition, releasing suppressed emotions like stress and fear and anger, increasing positive emotions like joy and peace and gratitude, embracing social support and keeping a strong social support network, deepening your spiritual practice, and always remaining connected to your strong reasons for living. So these sound like good things. Like these are things I think most of us could agree that if you're doing these nine things, you're feeling pretty good in life. So that's why radical mission survivors all say, I'm so happy I went through that experience because by doing these nine factors, I'm so much happier and healthier and vibrant than I was in my old life. And they look back and they're like, wow, that job was killing me. And I was unhappy and I was depressed. And wow, I was, I had so many toxins in my environment that I just didn't even know about. And now I'm so much more informed. They, they are empowered and happy on the other side of their remission, even though their life is different. Yeah, it seems like when you, as you're talking about this, that the, the one factor that underlie, underlies all the nine factors is that they chose to take responsibility. Well, certainly, you know, these, you know, you can't give yourself chemo, you can't give yourself surgery, but the nine factors are things that you do for yourself. You do them. You, someone doesn't do these things for you. But you could say, well, when you're releasing suppressed emotions, you might work with, you know, a healing touch practitioner who helps you or facilitates you in releasing your suppressed emotions. But you still need to be willing to go to that appointment and be open to it um, and, and, and be you willing have to, to do the work. And you have to yeah. be willing to say, my suppressed emotions are playing a role here. But by responsibility, I don't necessarily mean that you have to do it, but that you have to own it. Yes, yes. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought up this, this idea because there's, there's this thorny issue in um, any sort of mind-body research, especially as it relates to cancer, of blaming the victim. And what I would like to say is there's blaming the victim and enhancing the immune system. And they are two very different things. <laughs> Okay, we know for a fact that certain toxins cause cancer. We do this every day in the lab. We inject rats with toxins and they grow tumors, right? That's not the rat's fault. It's not the, you know, the, it's not that the rat was so stressed that this toxin formed a tumor. No, we injected a toxin into this rat and it grew a tumor. So blaming cancer on anyone is, is not appropriate because there's so many ways that, that um, cells can start behaving cancerously and one of them is, um, you know, toxins, and that's nobody's fault. 
um, except maybe humanities <laughs> for introducing toxins. But anyway, long story short, I always like to use the teapot example. If, if your body, mind, spirit system is a teapot and some toxin like DDT comes around and knocks it off the shelf and splinters it, right, and gives it cancer, it's the DDT's fault. But you can't necessarily reverse the DDT. You can't, you know, you can try to, you know, detoxify and take the DDT out of your system, but for the most part, the damage is done. The teapot's broken. What you can do is go into your, your, um, linen closet and find some glue. And that, that, you might find glue in there that you didn't even know you had or that you didn't even think would work to repair this teapot. That is the immune system. That's the nine factors. So somebody's cancer may have been caused by, you know, the toxins that were in the lake at their summer camp when they were 8, 9, 10, and 11. But they might use releasing suppressed emotions and deepening their spiritual practice and following their intuition and all of the nine factors to repair that damage because what they're doing is they're using their immune system to glue that teapot back together. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's, it's so much of a better way of saying it because I remember, um, I, I, think, I can't remember how many years ago, I read a book by a, a doctor, Bernie Siegel. Remember, uh, was it Love, mm-hmm. Love, Medicine, and Miracles? And, Wonderful book. And at the same time, I, I was reading the work of, uh, I think, David Spiegel. I think he was at Stanford, who was doing work with cancer and um, stress management. And he was on a rampage because people kept confusing Spiegel with Siegel and saying yeah. you know, that how irresponsible it was for Bernie Siegel to be talking about, you know, like having people having cancer personalities, which I think was kind of a big thing in the alternative world in the 70s and 80s, that people got cancer, yeah. couldn't stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's been debunked. Right. So, so, but when you say to someone, you know, you, you, if you release your negative emotions, it will help. There's a way for people to feel very defensive about that. Like, oh, you're saying my negative emotions being held in caused the cancer or caused it to grow. And, uh, exactly. And, and that's not what we're trying to do here. Like, you wouldn't accuse that teapot of breaking um, because it didn't have enough glue. You would say that teapot broke because DDT, the toxic chemical, came over and knocked it over. One of the glues that I'm going to use is releasing stress in my life because I know that releasing sources of stress in my life helps my immune system, and my, my immune system is how my body fights cancer. And so, or let's say repairs cancer. And so, you know, it's, it's not that your, your teapot didn't have enough glue in it. It didn't just crumble apart one day. Um, something else may have knocked it over, but you can still go use these glues, these immune system strengtheners to repair and glue that teapot back together. And one of those is reducing your stress load. So it's sort of like, the cure doesn't necessarily need to indicate that that was the cause. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, I mean, I interview plenty of rock emergency survivors who say, I know that my immune system got weakened due to my divorce. And therefore, I know that for me, a big part of my healing needs to be releasing the suppressed emotions and the pain of my divorce. And they are not defensive about that. They own that. And they actually feel empowered by it because they're like, great. Now I can actually do something. I'm not powerless. I can work on this. Um, and there are other people who say, you know what? My emotional life is great. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I keep my stress down. But, but I really think that this is related to the toxic mold in my walls. And so I'm going to clean all the mold out of my walls. And I'm going to, you know, take all the toxins out of my lotions. And, and I'm going to focus more on that healing factor. Um, and so, you know, figuring out, what caused it is hard sometimes. What we do know from medical mission survivors is that their cure are these nine healing factors that strengthen the immune system. So regardless of what caused it, you can still do these nine things to just have your immune system take care of it. Right. So I, I've just made a, uh, an audible in my head, a, uh, a decision that um, I'm going to be a little bit sleazy and not have you go through all nine factors. Partly because I want people to buy the book. 
Like I really want wow. people to uh, to get it, and this is like you know the cheapest marketing trick in the book to tease them and then not give them all the stuff. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's easy to find. I think. Um, you know, but it, it is it is such a just when you have the book and you go through it and you hear the stories and you see it all pulled together. I want people to to not just take away this conversation uh, and be done with it. But I I would like to to end by asking you about the Radical Remission Project and where it's going and how people can get involved. Ah, oh, wonderful! Yes. Um... The Radical Mission Project, which is a website at RadicalMission.com, is my attempt to fix the problem of these cases not being studied. So these cases are not tracked in the National Cancer Registry, which I think is just abominable. Um, and the only way that we currently have of finding out about these cases is if their doctor takes the time to write up a case report and submit it to a medical journal for publication, which, by the way, requires that doctor to donate about 40 hours of unpaid time to write up that report and submit it. So as you might imagine, very, very few doctors who see these radical missions in their practice take the time to do these reports. And, and uh, based on my estimation, for every report that does get published in medical journals, I estimate that there are 100 more that go unpublished. Um, just to give you a, a little feedback on that, of the 250 in-depth interviews I've done, only one has been submitted for publication and it has not yet been accepted. And this is being submitted by the Dean of Harvard Medical School and it has not been accepted. <laughs> so, so anyway, to, to combat that problem, um, I'm harnessing the, the power of the internet and at RadicalMission.com, you can share your radical remission story with me and my team of researchers in 10 minutes or less. And we will follow up with you if we need more info. Um, but in 10 quick minutes, you can tell a team of researchers how you healed. And more importantly, the other aspect of the site um, is that, you, that um, members of the general public can, can read these stories right away. So if we um, accept a case into our database, excuse me, um, then anybody who's got access to the Internet can go to our find page, find a story, and they can search for all the radical mission cases in our database for breast cancer or for ovarian cancer or lung or whatever. And um, this database is growing. We get new cases every week. We're getting them from all over the world. Um, and, in fact, I'm looking for a university research partner at the moment to help me uh, and, and help my, my little staff here analyze these cases because we just can't, you know, we just can't do it. There's just too many coming in. So it, in the past year and a half since the book's been out, we've already collected six times the amount of radical mission cases that are typically published during that time in medical journals. So... It's really happening a lot more often than than we are aware of if we were to just look at the numbers in the medical journal. Right, which which reminds me of one one more um, factor that I'd like to bring in because to, to me, if, mm -hmm. if 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 the foundation is having a strong will to live, so you'll actually do the other eight, then I think the thing that helps people keep doing it in the face of sort of medical disinterest slash. Uh, ridicule um, is social support, and so you know, yeah. what, what you're creating online is a form of social support. Um, but people also need that in their, you know, in their own communities. I've, I've, you know, I work with clients who want to take a natural approach. I recommend your book to them, and they tell me that their partner or their children or their parents say, you know, just go get the chemo, go do the most radical, you know, the uh, the, the most aggressive thing. And that they're they're lacking the kind of support that says yes, this is possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, increasing your social support network was one of the nine key factors among radical mission survivors, and that's not always easy to do when you have um, family members who are very much opposed to what you're doing. What I always say to people is. These nine factors can be done right alongside chemo, surgery, and radiation. In fact, many of the studies that I cite in the book are studies that show that these nine factors reduce the side effects of chemo and surgery and radiation while also boosting the immune system of those patients. So, um, you know, this is not a book that says you've got to go drop Western medicine. That's not what this book is at all. This book is saying um, this incredible group of people that weren't being studied do these nine things. And if you want to start doing these things right now, whether you're choosing to do conventional treatment or not, or whether you're just trying to prevent cancer, 
Um, these are things that you can do right now. They're things that you can do. Um, and having, having supportive people around is one of those factors. And so some of the radical mission survivors I studied, they had to distance, distance themselves from certain friends and family who weren't supportive. And what's interesting, like, you know, Matthew in Chapter 8, this young man with an inoperable brain tumor that did not respond at all to radiation or chemo, and so he was sent home to die. Um, he then, he had nothing left to lose at that point, so he jumped whole hog into, into these nine factors. And one of his friends was a doctor, a young, a young female doctor, and she wrote to him about a year later. You know, he was given three months to live, so a year later, when he was still doing well, she wrote to him and she said, you know, at first, I just, I thought you were wasting your money and, and, you know, just having false hope up until the day you died. She goes, I'm writing this to you with tears in my eyes. And all I can say to you is, I don't know why the things you're doing are working, but please just keep doing them. And so he lost her support at first. You know, she sort of silenced herself and because she was feeling reactive to what he was doing. Um, and she was mature enough to just stay silent and not, not, you know, tell him her thoughts at the time. But for, he said that was such a beautiful email to receive because for her, from her very steep medical background, to have come around and say, I still don't understand why you're doing this and how it could possibly be working, but I support you, and please just keep doing it. Um, that really meant a lot to him. Hmm. Right. So are there um, groups uh, forming? Are there like radical remission meetups? Or is there a plan to kind of uh, help people? You know, because if I'm doing this all by myself and I have the book, I can imagine it's much harder than knowing 12 other people in the neighborhood who are, who are also embracing um, these strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, actually, thanks to my talk at the Ohio Wellness Forum, uh, where we met, Howard, um, I've been talking with the founder of the Wellness Forum, Dr. Pam Popper, um, about this idea. Um, and this is something that's been brewing for me for a while. Um, I just didn't quite know how to make it happen. So hopefully Pam and I um, can make it happen. But the idea would be to start, um, well, first and foremost, I'm going to be putting out an online course this spring in March um, that allows people to sort of apply these nine factors to their life if they want to. And that's a self-study course. Um, you know, you could do it from your bed if you're bedridden. Um, it's just an online thing. But we will have a Facebook community group for that, a closed group for people who take that course. So that'll be a little bit of online community. Um, I certainly have big plans for the website to have, you know, a breast cancer radical remission support group on the site and, you know, a prostate group and that sort of thing. Um, that's all hinging on uh, fundraising for improving the website. So we're working on that. And then um, down the road, we really do hope to be able to train um, people who can lead groups such as yourself um, or other, you know, therapists or group leaders um, to run a sort of nine-week support group, basically, where you meet once a week and you talk about one of these nine factors and um, you explore it and you um, do some exercises to start doing it. And then, um, you you know, you work on it that week and you come back the next week and report how it went. And the idea is that these would be ongoing. So, you know, if you missed, if you missed this round, you just got to wait and then start it, start it at the next round. A lot like MBSR groups, mindfulness-based stress, stress reduction groups. That's, um, I think it's a six-week or maybe it's an eight-week course that's offered at hospitals around the country. So ideally, um, because these nine factors are safe and can be done right alongside chemo, ideally we would have these groups around the country and maybe even around the world where when someone's diagnosed, they can, you know, in a couple of weeks join their community's radical revision group and they can go through these nine weeks and, and, um, and feel that support. So... Let's uh, hope, Howard. Let's hope we can make it happen. Right. It's, it sounds like you might get your uh, randomized clinical trials uh, out, of, out of that initiative. Yeah. You know, that's sort, of, that's sort of where I'm thinking. You know, the MBSR work is a great model because, um, you know, they first established that this course was safe, and then they just started offering it, and then they started saying, well, let's start comparing people who take the course versus people who don't take the course. Um, and, of course, they found incredible benefits from, from taking that course. So the hope would be that, you know, we could randomize people um, into this nine-week course and, and, um, and compare the ones who take it the, and the ones who don't and see, you know, not just if they're feeling better and happier at the end, but actually looking at their 
you know, their tumor markers and their immune markers and saying, did we strengthen your immune system? Did your tumor count go down or your, you know, um, your tumor markers go down? But, uh, oh, that's, that's a long way off in the future, but maybe we can make it up. If we work together, maybe we can have it happen sooner than anything. Right. So if people just want to stay in touch with you, they may not have a story to share or they may not be, you know, looking for, uh, for data on uh, radical remission survivors. Is there a way that they can just sort of stay in the loop so that when you offer yeah. the course or when you, you know, when people want to become um, trained providers of, of these nine-week programs, how do people just stay in touch with you? Great question. Um, the best way to do it is through the newsletter. So either at RadicalRemission.com or my personal site, Callie-Turner.com. Right there on the homepage, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter at this point, so you're not going to be, you know, annoyed by us. <laughs> um, we're not going to email you every day or anything. But that's where we make our big announcements about, like, oh, the course is coming up or, um, you know, this, this certification program is coming up. And then, of course, we're on Facebook as well, um, and that's, I, I, I post interesting articles there and interesting updates there um, a little more frequently than once a month. You know, I, I try to post every every other day or so. Um, and that's a great little community with a lot of people commenting and um, chiming in about things that they're finding and doctors and therapies that they're trying. So it's um, it's a really fun fun space at, at the Radical Remission Project on Facebook. Great. So we'll uh, we'll post links to those in the show notes. And, um, you know, at, at the risk of changing history, because I, I realized that, uh, that so much of your impact and success in this field has been due to the humble way in which you've approached the topic and the question and your, um, your, your teachers, your research subjects, I will say that um, I do believe this work is Nobel Prize worthy. <laughs> and when, you, when you're up there in Oslo getting the award, I'm going to casually mention this conversation <laughs> for years. So... It is. Wow. Well, thank you for putting that out in the universe. I'm certainly, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to not ignore people who've cured cancer. I, I think that's stupid. You know, if someone has turned around stage four cancer, we should be studying them. Um, and uh, and it's not just me who's who's doing great work like this. Um, the real people who are doing the great work are the radical mission survivors who are fumbling around in the dark until they find a way to remission. So they are. Um, they are my inspiration, and I will keep studying them until we can figure out exactly how they're doing these, these amazing omissions. Right on. Well, Kelly Turner, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely, Howard. My pleasure. All right. Be well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can listen to previous shows at plantyourself.com. If you'd like to support the show, here are some ways to do it. Share this show on social media, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and become a patron. You can do all of those things from plantyourself.com. The uh, donate and become a patron button are over on the right, and with the player in each episode are links to go to iTunes and Stitcher and share it in various other ways. So I'm getting the hang of TV or at least live internet video. I've been doing a show now for almost two months and I'm starting to feel pretty good about it. And there is a link to every show that I do in the Plant Yourself Wellness Weekly newsletter. So if you're listening to this and you don't get the newsletter, you can sign up at plantyourself.com. Below the player on every single episode is a sign-up sheet. And that newsletter lets you know not only about each podcast episode, but also articles that I write, the, uh, the TV show. This week it was about how to shift your behavior, how to change and upgrade your lifestyle. And this was part one. Part two next week, I will share mindsets and strategies, specifics for making those changes, whether it's becoming plant-based or quitting smoking or starting an exercise routine or being nicer to your kids or any kind of behavioral lifestyle upgrade you'd want to make. In garden news, we're expecting a serious killing frost tonight and tomorrow night down to 15 uh, Fahrenheit, which probably won't impress many of you in the uh, northern climes, but to us here in North Carolina, it's a pretty big deal. So, you know, we're still growing winter greens out there. So we went out there with uh, a whole bunch of, of cloths, of, the cover, of a cover cloths, and my wife and my son and I worked furiously in the cold and the wind for about half an hour laying those down. It's a third layer 
of cover cloth over those greens to see if they will survive. And I remember doing this last year in the dead of night in a, a snowstorm, and I was the only one awake to do it, and how hard it was and how things kept blowing off, and how amazing it was to work with two other people, common purpose. It, it could have been so horrible, but it ended up being kind of fun, even though we all came in with really cold fingers and dripping noses. And so I wish for all of you, if there's anything uh, hard or challenging going on, that you put together a team, that you find people of like mind who share your passion, who share your mission, and as the saying goes, many hands can make light work and many hearts can turn the world. And with that, as always, be well, my friends.